0: Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, everybody. Ron Geyer, End Time Insights, talking about Jesus, getting to know Jesus through the book of Revelation. Hallelujah. I hope you had a good resurrection celebration last Sunday. It was an awesome time. You know, and looking back on it, as I was praying during the week, I was just so convicted within the body that we don't take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us all the time. And we we need to be better, have a better sensitivity to like an Easter holiday. When people are in church, they haven't been in there a while, we need to go out there, we find them. God brings a mission field right into our churches, and we really need to understand that and take advantage of that and do things that we don't normally do in finding ways to reach out to them, to connect with these people. Maybe they just need a hug maybe they need somebody to pray with, but your church is closed. What good are you doing in that regard? Amen? Anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest. Today, we're continuing on with Revelation chapter 1. We're going to finish it and want to pick up on verse 12 because John is about to meet Jesus Christ, John the Revelator, the Apostle John. And I turned, verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. So somebody spoke to John. He was behind him, and John turned around. He recognized the voice, because don't forget, he walked with Jesus in the earth for three years. He knew who Jesus was. So he turns around, and what does he see? He doesn't see a person. He sees seven golden candlesticks. You'll find out in verse 20 in a minute that these seven golden candlesticks represent the seven churches in Asia Minor uh, that Jesus is going to write the letters to, the church at uh, let's see, Ephesus at Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That's where these candlesticks, that's who they represent, those particular seven churches. Truth be told, they represent the body of Christ. They represent the church. And verse 13, and in the midst of these seven candlesticks, one like unto the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. I love this. Don't forget, I just told you, John walked with Jesus, the son of man, on the earth for three years. Well, he hears his voice. He goes, I know that voice. And he turns around and he sees these seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the son of man. He didn't say the son of man. He knew the son of man. He goes, but this guy looks like the son of man. And he was clothed with a garment down to the foot. And he was girded about the paps with a golden girdle. So John recognizes the voice, but the picture, this doesn't quite look like the Jesus, the Son of Man that I knew. But notice, Jesus is the head of the church. Where is he? He is in the midst of the seven churches. That's where Jesus is today. He's in the midst of your church. You must get that revelation. What is Jesus doing on Sunday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Saturday night, at your prayer meeting, at your weekly prayer meeting? What is Jesus doing? He is in the midst of your church. You've got to understand that. The care and the attention our Lord Jesus Christ gives to his church is phenomenal. In the book of Revelation, we see it over and over and over and over and over again. And this care, I mean, when we get into the books of um, the third book, the fourth book about Thyatira, about Pergamos, the depth of the care with which he protects the church, with which he guards the church is astounding. It is divine in its revelation. We'll be there in a week or two, but you need to stay tuned for that. How dare we violate God's word in his church? We've got to understand when Jesus tells us something, it's his church. You know... I heard somebody say the other day that, you know, we we build the church and we try to get God to come into this church and we want his presence manifested in the church that we build. No, 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 no. If it's his church, that's fine. He's trying to get us into that church where he lives. We don't live there and we invite Christ in. He lives there and he allows us to come in. And we've got to get that understanding. His church, not my church, not my pastor's church, not your pastor's church. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How dare we in our churches place our own well-being above our service to him? How dare we bow down to ungodly mandates from godless man in government? If we truly knew who our Lord Jesus Christ was, if we truly knew him as the head of the church, if we truly knew the church as the pillar and the ground of truth, we would live wholly in his church. Scripture goes on, one like unto. John wasn't quite sure yet who this was. He knew the voice. Remember, He walked with Jesus on the earth for three years, but this person was kind of different. He did know him as the son of man. Here, though, he is about to meet him as judge of the universe. Garment down to his foot. What does that remind you of? That is the priestly garment. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the son of man clothed with a garment down to the foot. That was the priestly robe of the Jewish priest as they did obeisance and sacrifice and worked in the temple. He did know him as the son of man. Now he's seeing him as priest. Garment down to his foot, priestly garb, golden girdle about his chest closes out the description of how John sees Jesus. He is not only the priest, but that golden girdle, he is the judge as well. Jesus is sending a message to John. No, to everybody. I am the king. I am the priest. I am the judge. Remember, in the Old Testament, you were either the king in civil government or you were the priest in the kingdom, but you weren't both. Here though, Jesus is representing both the civil government head and the spiritual head. He says, I am both. And this is how God is revealing himself to John. Verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And this brings to mind Daniel, where we get a picture of God himself, the Ancient of days with the same description. I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit God on the throne whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as a burning fire. Uh, John Walford writes, this shows the deity of Christ who also possesses all the characteristics and the attributes of God himself. I love it. God and Jesus are both pictured in the same way. In Daniel, God reveals himself in this manner. And in the book of Revelation, chapter one, Jesus reveals himself in the same manner to John. Eyes as a flame of fire reveal the searching righteousness of and the divine judgment by God upon all that is impure or evil. Now, remember, Jesus is standing in the midst of the seven churches, and he's got eyes that were as flame of fire. Yes, he's in the midst of your church. Yes, he knows what's going on, but he's also searching out. He wants the evil and the impurities out of his church. When we get on into the specific lessons on the seven churches, you're going to be astounded. It is just so astounding. I can't wait to get there. Verse 15, and his feet were like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Well, I recall when he went into the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Amen. And there was a fiery furnace heated hotter than it's ever been. And Jesus was walking around with these guys in there. I'm sure Jesus's feet didn't get burned in that fire, but that's the image that comes to mind for me and his feet were like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. Brass is always a picture of divine judgment. Brass, bronze, is used interchangeable. Remember it was the laver where the priest offered the offering for sin? It always is in connection with sin. The bronze of his feet symbolizes divine judgments embodied in the Old Testament type of the bronze altar and other items of bronze that were used in connection with the sin offering with the sin sacrifice. Verse 16, and he had in his right hand, this is great, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. The seven stars in his right hand, you're going to see this identified in two more verses, three more verses. The seven stars in his right hand also referred to as angels, or the Greek word anglos in verse 20, those are the ministry leaders of the individual churches. Seven golden candlesticks represent seven churches. Seven stars represent seven ministry leaders or pastors would be the best translation for that. Notice that Jesus has a firm grip on them, holding them in his right hand. Jesus himself, he holds the seven stars, the seven pastors, in his right hand, which we see in verse 20 are the seven Anglos or the better translation is pastors. The point being is God has your pastor in his right hand and he holds them in his right hand. That's a position of strength. That's a position of power, of control. There are different ideas about this from some teachers, but basically it is generally understood that Jesus is holding the seven pastors, the seven ministry leaders of the churches in his right hand. It can mean profit. It can even mean... uh, It can mean ministry leaders. It could mean reverend or something like that. But basically, the fivefold ministry leaders, basically just take it. When Jesus talks about these angels, he's talking to the pastor. The seven stars are the pastors of the churches. Jesus writes the letter to the pastors. Jesus is a God of order. The order, he has a divine order, just like your military. They call it a chain of command. The chain of command. When we go to church Sunday morning, Jesus doesn't give Ron, the Bible teacher, the message for the church. He gives it to the pastor because the pastor is the messenger that he gives the message to, just like he does in the book of Revelation. There are different ideas about this, but just get it in your brain. These are the seven pastors, the seven angels. We can dismiss the idea that these might be angels per se because of what follows in the next chapter. God is a God of order. He will challenge and rebuke the church. He will correct and comfort the church through his leadership. He would never give that assignment to angels. He gives it to the pastors you got that, or fivefold ministry leaders, but definitely not angels, that leadership is being held in the right hand, I think the Greek word is Kratos, to have a strong, masterful grip on them he's not going to let them go when we get to the next church you're going to see where the uh the saints their condemnation, their conviction, their judgment was because they had lost their first love and I love this because Jesus is holding on to the pastors in a strong, masterful grip. They may have let go of their grip on Jesus, but not so with Jesus. Mm -mm -mm -mm. This leadership in his right hand, Jesus signifies strength, power, authority, rule, safety, and righteousness. The two-edged sword detailed in his description also talks about basically the word of God. Hebrews four twelve, 12, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I always love that last phrase. Uh, the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of your mind. No, the thoughts and the intents of your heart. Your heart has thoughts. You've got to understand that. All the thoughts that Christians think don't go to the mind. Many of them are thought right in the heart. The word spoken out of the mouth as Jesus reveals it, it is the sword of truth. It can slice and dice away flesh or sickness. It can heal or it can judge. Jesus wields it in its purest sense. The word of God, man. His countenance was far beyond the ability of mortal John to stand before him. I say it again. He knew Jesus, the son of man. Here, he is meeting Jesus, the Son of God. He is meeting Jesus, clothed in his glory, dressed in his divine dignity. It is an awesome picture. I love it. And what is John's reaction? Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God, and flesh and blood could not stand before the kingdom's king. Remember what God did to Moses when he wanted to see God. God put him in a cleft in the rock. He covered him with his hand, and he just let him see his back as he walked away from him. So strong was the glory of God and the presence of God that Moses had to wear a veil because it shone so bright. Yet here, John was in the presence of God. And there's an interesting lesson there. The Jews under the law could not stand in the presence of God. It literally would have killed them. And yet here we see John. He's a picture of today's church. He's not a picture of the law. He's a picture of grace. And we see John is able to stand before the presence of the Lord. That is the privilege that we have under grace, church. That is where we should be spending our time in the presence of the Lord. Verse 17. And when I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as dead. Surely, surely. Now, I don't know whether Jesus would have done and raised Moses if that had happened with Moses. It didn't happen, though, because God hid Moses because God knew he couldn't stand it. It would have totally once and for all oh, wiped him out. He would have become crispy critter ashes. But not so, John. Jesus then laid his right hand upon John, saying unto him, fear not, I am the first and the last. So John got it. Wow. This is Jesus, the Son of Man, but I am looking at him now as Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus tells him, "Fear not, and then he goes to pick him up with his right hand. Remember what did we say about that right hand, right? We just read it. The right hand it is signifying strength, power, authority, rule, safety, and righteousness. Jesus bends down, he picks up John, and he says, "I am the first, I am the last." I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, wow, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Basically, Jesus is telling him what he has done here. He's revealing to John up close and personal, one-on-one, exactly who he is and what took place. It's at this point that John realizes, whoa, the same Jesus whom he knew as the Son of Man in a nutsuit, suit is truly God. It knocks him on his butt. He passes out. Jesus gets him back up, raises him up. Resurrection. He just didn't touch John, but he touched him with his right hand, the same hand that holds your pastor, the pastors of the seven churches. This hand is strength and his power in conjunction with the spoken word easily raises John. John, representing the church, is told, fear not what a truth, what a lesson. We are not to fear the presence of the Lord. Can't we get that down in our spirits? We are not to fear the presence of the Lord. Was John perfectly delivered from sin? I have no idea. He may have been, he may not have been, but it doesn't matter. As a member of the New Testament church, the body of Christ, he was told, fear not God. What a word for today's church. Jesus is the first and the last, and you think by now we would get that. There is nothing in this earth that matters even closely than a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end of the Alpha and the Omega. By him, all things consist by him. Nothing was made that is made. Nothing, nothing has any life apart from Jesus Christ. We have got to get that. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ, in the form of the Holy Spirit, lived inside us. We cannot fear God. I posted something on Facebook the other day about the fear of man, just so disappointed how many of our churches did not take the Easter holiday to open up to really truly become free from their fear. Let's see, how did I say it? Your freedom ends where your fear begins. Your freedom ends where your fear begins. And many of us are trying to live both ways in the church. We confess that we're free. We say that we're free, but we still have fear and there is no freedom. And the people that sit in the pews, we're not stupid. We're not fooled. We know what truly is going on. So John's easily raised by Jesus, representing the church. He's told to fear not. Again, Jesus is the first and the last. We should understand that. Jesus is our all in all. There really isn't anything else for the believer in Christ but Jesus It's that simple. Actually, there's nothing else for the world also. It's all about Jesus Christ. He also reveals to John that he is the resurrection. Fitting on the week after Easter, he is the resurrection. He also controls where we spend eternity. He has given us all an opportunity to live forever with him in heaven. Those of us who receive it, he gives us life in heaven. That life in heaven has already begun now. We're already seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He has the keys to hell. He has the keys to death. He alone decides who lives and who dies. Don't ever let anybody tell you God is not sovereign. I don't care how they justify it. I don't care the reasons, the excuses, the the things that they may give you. God is sovereign. You are the clay. He is the powder. It's his. All life is his. All death is his. All time. All space. All eternity. It's all his. He is God and we are not. Verse 19. Write these things which you've seen, John, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Why does Jesus want John to make a record of what he's seeing? Why do you think that is? Well, God knows he's going to write a prophetic book, and yet, quite simply, he's doing this for us. This book is for us. All of the revelations, all of the truths, all of the visions, all of the prophecies, all of the warnings, all of the blessings, the past, the present, and the future— are all for us to know. But Satan has convinced the church that it's not important to understand the book of Revelation. Satan has convinced us that it's not important that we know the God of Revelation, the God of the Bible, Jesus, the head of the church. I can't think of anywhere better to start. Okay, you get born again, you get saved, you read chapter one in Romans, uh, you read the book of John, John 17, and you immediately need to go to the book of Revelation and understand what the head of the church has to say to you, to me, and the rest of the churches. Verse 20, this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire book of Revelation, one of my favorite verses. The mystery of the seven stars, which you've seen in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which you saw, are the seven churches. Very simply, John is learning from Jesus Christ that the seven stars are are the churches. It's a mystery, but I'm revealing the mystery to you. The seven stars are the seven pastors and the seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches. Look at this. When you read the book of Revelation and most uh, teachers, they talk about the seven churches. They say, oh, well, you know, uh, Thyatira was the church of corruption and Pergamos was the church of um, compromise and the Ephesus, they went ahead and they lost their first love. You hear all the negative stuff about it. But look at this. This is so important. Jesus golden candlesticks. He sees the seven churches as golden candlesticks. He doesn't see them as corrupt. He doesn't see them as compromising. He doesn't see them as walking away from his love and his fellowship and his presence. He sees them as golden. He sees them as pure. Remember, it's the church of the living God. Quit thinking that your church, is the church he's talking about. He's not talking about your church. He's talking about the body of Christ as a whole. We have different houses where we worship God, where we learn about God, where we come together and we are assigned certain tasks within the body of Christ. But it is the church of the living God and he sees it perfect. That includes the saints in the Catholic church. That includes saints in the Presbyterian church, in the Lutheran church, in the Pentecostal Baptist, whatever, word of faith movement. That includes whosoever is born again. We all go to make up the church of the living God, and Jesus says it is golden. Candlesticks are short-term. The best translation for candlesticks would be lampstands. Candlesticks, you light it, and the wick burns, and it's done. That's not the case with Uh, a lampstand with a lampstand. It's like an an Aladdin's lamp, a little genie's lamp. And you put it on a stand and you filled it with oil and you put a wick in it and you lit it and you could put as much oil in it as you want as it got low. And that fire never went out. That's the better picture of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are oil that never burns oil, the Holy Spirit of God, the word of God. This is the introductory chapter in the book of Revelation. Here we meet Jesus up close, we meet him personal as he reveals himself to John. And in the manner that he chooses, I'm gonna quickly jump to verse one in chapter two because I want you to see something. Several attributes of Christ are revealed here in this book. He's establishing himself as God. He's establishing himself as the judge, as the king. He's establishing himself in various manifestations of his presence and you're gonna learn more about him in the coming chapter. I'm going to go ahead and do the first verse in chapter 2, verse 1, because it connects something. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars, we've got that, the pastors, in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. This is revelatory. This is awesome. So we see right here, where's Jesus? He's walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Walking in the midst. We've already found out at the end of the other chapter that Jesus is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So scripture has established and confirmed the fact that Jesus is in the midst of the church. When you go to church Sunday morning, Jesus is there. He's in the midst of your church. He's in the midst of my church. He's in the midst of everybody's church. It's his church. But look at the language here. Who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Walketh, the Greek word is peripathos peri pathos peri means around pathos path he's walking around the church and it's a path that he's been on it's a well-worn path and he's been on it sunday after sunday tuesday after tuesday jesus knows what's going on outside the church but then he not only says he walketh but where's he walking he walketh in the midst he is inside the church he's in the middle he's right in the gut of your church observing what's happening, checking out what's going on. If you put it all together, basically what we're saying and what the Bible is saying here is Jesus is doing an outward observation and an inward examination of your church of my church. An outward observation. He's checking out what's going on on the outside. He's done it a million times. He'll do it another million times. And also, he's in the midst. He is inside at your service. He is standing right there walking up and down the aisles checking out what's going on. Who's following the teaching in their Bible? Who's praying? Who's catching up on the latest golf score or football score? He knows. This is his church. This is the care with which he watches it. You've got to get that revelation. It's his church. He died for it. He established it. And the gates of hell will not prevent against it we'll come back next week we're going to start on our study on the book of uh on the church at ephesus you're going to love it Amran am have a great week the lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you in jesus name amen So before we close out, I just want to pray for you guys. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in our nation, a lot of threats, a lot of assaults, and I just want to pray for your faith. Father God, just like you prayed for Peter, that his faith would fail not. I pray for my brothers and sisters, Father God, that their faith would remain strong, that it would grow, that it would grow by them listening to the word and receiving the word. I pray that you would draw them closer to you. No man comes to the Father except the Spirit. Draw him. Keep them as the apple of your eye, Father God. Perfect that which concerns them. In Jesus' name, amen.